The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome, my name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your trio of co-hosts on this 46th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this early morning from a deeply snow-covered capital of the Ukraine, which for many of you may be situated on the other side of the globe. As the dawn chorus begins to, well, thaw here, hopefully many of you are relaxing into a very warm evening. It is wonderful to see a city filled with such beautiful architecture covered in a white layer of snow despite the rather fresh temperatures of minus 22 degrees centigrade. That's nearly minus 7.5 degrees for those who still think in Fahrenheit. Clearly there is something afoot with the weather this week. For those who have been following the material in our links, you will already be aware we are entering a circa 20 year solar minimum. So this is not going away quickly, which is in stark contrast to the minority's narrative acted out by the global warming and climate change fraternity using puppets such as Al Gore and Greta et al. to attempt to brainwash the flock. While it is, of course, totally normal for many Northern Hemisphere countries to experience cold snaps at this time of the winter, it is, however, far more unusual for states like Texas to suffer from conditions which are more synonymous with Canada, and for countries like Greece, Turkey and Syria to experience heavy snowfall. But it is damn right strange for countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia to report snow and ice at this time of the year, and all at the same time. I would kindly suggest you keep an eye on this phenomenon and ask yourself, is the sole cause the solar minimum, or are there more malicious strategies in play, such as high altitude seeding activated by radio wave heaters and ultra low frequency transmitters, for example. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer Kintia, together with co-host and research Annette Driscoll, who are once again speaking this evening from the infamous wheelhouse in California. This show is entitled Fact or Fiction. I've been very fortunate to travel internationally again this week, which is a perfect opportunity to experience and share the state of how security, airlines and the authorities have changed from their previous so-called old normal protocols to the new normal. I specifically chose a destination that appears to be less nervous about COVID 
than many other countries with regards to the precautions that are being pushed so hard through propaganda on mainstream media and television programming. I would say this journey was far less challenging than I had expected, although the Ukraine is a country that does not require a negative PCR result on entry. Instead, it simply requires inexpensive travel or health insurance that includes cover for COVID-19 observation and treatment, should this ever be required. Masks are required inside the airport and on all aircraft, with no apparent exceptions, apart from eating and drinking and smoking in designated areas. While this mandate is not law, if you want to travel, you need to conform. And this journey was one I was obliged to make. The unhealthy and ineffective masks do not offer any real protection and cause more harm than good, which has been officially showcased by thousands of doctors and an increasing number of courtrooms around the globe in more recent weeks. Further, a few simple hacks may be applied. Eat very slowly and drink very slowly. Try doing that with a mask on. And miraculously, the COVIDs don't attack you during these actions. While I do not condone smoking, however, the little metal wire that is usually bent around the contour of your nose may also be inverted, allowing a much greater airway. And of course, change masks frequently, like every couple of hours. If these masks were really effective, they would be disposed of in recycling bins marked with a skull and crossbones. However, this is a detail most authorities tend to overlook. People on the street in the Ukraine do not tend to wear masks. There are a few, but mask wearers are definitely the minority. I was delighted to see and experience this freedom. However, entering restaurants, bars, hotels and taxis are rarely populated with mask wearers. The entry points seem to be the checkpoint where the temperature of individuals is checked, although I wonder how anyone could manifest a fever in such sub-zero temperatures. So it is a great pleasure to experience a few days of life while breathing fresh air. On my return, however, re-entering a country such as Turkey from the Ukraine requires one extra condition, that of sharing a negative PCR within 72 hours of departure. This is necessary or else no entry is granted. While I feel a traitor to the cause, I did need to travel and so I did need to take the PCR, whatever it is. I had imagined a long Q-tip aggressively thrust up my nasal cavity to scrape a sample from the thin wall that separates my brain from the respiratory system. However, I would have to say the nurse, who was very gentle and only really made contact with the inner linings of my nostrils rather than any deep invasive test. After a seven hour wait, sure enough, the PCR thing result came back as negative. Of course it did which offers me freedom to travel. What is amazing is this PCR thing, as it's not a test, does not test for COVID-19, as the virus has not yet been isolated, and it does not mention how many cycles we use to generate my sample. So what is it for? What is it screening me for? Is it simply a tool of taxation at a cost of $57 and seven hours of my time to wait for the result? And if it does successfully screen me to be fit for travel, then why are all the screen passengers in the departure lounge still made to wear unhealthy and ineffective masks, anti-social distance, and only sit on seats that are not covered with red and white tape normally associated with roadworks? So the mystery continues about COVID-19. Does it actually exist? If so, 
does it really justify locking down the planet, strangling the economy and brainwashing the masses to live in a state of fear? Do you remember the videos emerging from Wuhan earlier last year, showing bystanders in the street suddenly falling over? Have you ever seen this ever since? A year on, it is time to ask some fundamental questions. I very much look forward to hearing our guest perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on the other side of the news in the drop down menu or kindly scroll down to tonight's white The Other Side of the News show banner. There you will see details for the show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references, and selected research. As usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch, and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I do urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later, as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last week, we have been inundated by a deluge of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss and present each topic in correct context could all too easily fill up the entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guest. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, and activists who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda to make your own independent research and to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, our guest is such an individual. I look forward to him joining us shortly. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Aneta. Have you been issued with a vaccine passport yet? Hell to the no. This is Aneta, and once again, it's another wild and woolly week in the world. And last week I said there were a bunch of things going on, and this week there still are more things and more things. It seems like it's speeding up out there in the news world. There's so much stuff coming in that I'm having a hard time tracking it. But I will say what's caught my fancy this week is the thing about the financial thing and the central banks. You know, with Russia disconnecting from the Rothschild-controlled U.S. dollar and the central banking system, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I don't know how much I've talked about this on the radio show, but I have talked to uh, all my friends know that I feel Russia and China are actually in cooperation with the United States. And it's always, I've always gets this uh, reaction like, oh, how, how could you possibly think that? And I, I wrote out this little thing, and I'm just going to read a couple questions to you because this is how I come to that, that idea. And it's like, so ask yourself, what's the difference between China and the Chinese Communist Party? And what's the difference between the USA and the parties in the United States? And what's the difference between Russia and the Russian Communist Party? Does each of these nations have a deep state? Does each nation have a population fighting back? At the same time, how many countries' roles are publicly, publicly of the enemy, but really it's their deep states that we're fighting and not the country? And so what I, I think we're seeing here is, is really fascinating because the thing with Miramar and, and what's going on there with the uh, who is speaking up against it. 
and uh, and you'll see it's like the UN and it's a bunch of deep state players that are speaking up against it. You know, do your own research, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that way. And Russia and China have said, "Hey, we're hands off. We're going to let them play themselves out." And uh, I find it absolutely fascinating. So there are so many cracks. Um, showing up in this facade that, that we've had placed, which is, you know, one of the, the cornerstones, as we know, has been the pandemic. And so all over the place, we're seeing a lot of truth poking through the cracks, let's say. And I find that really interesting, fascinating, and really, frankly, quite exciting. So I'm not going to get into all the other things because I could take up the whole show at that point, uh, <laughs> all the things that I've observed and noticed. But you know, just take a look at some of these things going on and you'll see there's many things starting to show. And as we've said this entire show, this is all connected. There is no uh, lack of connection here. That this, these, these uh, measures they put in place for a hoax virus that is, they're using it for control. They're, they're ultimately using it for eugenics they're, and, and they're ultimately, you know, trying to have the, the, all the control of the money. And so that's my opinion, you know, take it or leave it, but that's where I am with that. So what say you, Cynthia? Well, <laughs> ditto, ditto to all of that. And on the personal front, I am still really baffled by the schism between those who are accepting the mass media narrative and those who are questioning it. And as I mentioned last week, it's down to a very personal level because one of my sons is strongly on the other side. And so he's, he's thrown down the gauntlet to me, like prove it, <laughs> prove this and prove that. And so, you know, emails are flying back and forth and I have the deepest respect for him and there is a lot of love there, but you know, sometimes I feel like, well, a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And in the sense that people look at, information and they'll say well what are your sources like oh because it was on BitChute, now it doesn't qualify and then when you go go and you look even deeper you look at the sources so this has turned out to be a uh, hmm it's like a treasure hunt in a sense it's a mystery because i find myself in a unique position in that i am producing the weekend shows and the Friday show, which have a 180 spin on each other. And I'm being contacted by our listeners, by my friends, by previous guests. And all this information is coming through me and I'm trying to make sense of it myself. So at the bottom line here, I always keep coming back to breathe deeply center myself, let me check in in my gut when I'm calm, where is the truth meter pointing to? And I feel that this follow the money question really signals it. It really highlights in big, bold you know, letters with flashing yellow lights that like, this is definitely a pandemic, And... This is definitely part of a coup. And with that said, I continue to do my research and 
go down the rabbit hole and see what is coming up. So speaking of going down rabbit holes, I have a couple interesting things in my link that are definitely down the rabbit hole. There are two clips from Saturday Night Live from the last two weekends. And one of them is, I labeled it Hillary's Pizza Delivery. And the other one is about the Saturday Night Live Witch. And what's interesting about them is they're basically foreshadowing what we're going to see coming out in the media. But this is, you know, this is mainstream media. This is Saturday Night Live that's showing this. So the question becomes, why are they choosing to talk about it right now? I have my theories on that. You know, we'll see what happens. The other fascinating aspect of this is they're saying it's, uh, you know, it's QAnon uh, conspiracy theory. Interesting, because there's no such thing as QAnon. There's the Q, and then there's the Anons, the people that are basically interpreting what the Q is saying. So that in and of itself is interesting. And then the idea that they're speaking about adrenochrome or eating children and cannibalism, which is never mentioned by Q. So I've had three or four people point that out to me. So I just thought I'd bring that up. That it's foreshadowing, but is it foreshadowing what they know is coming? Or, you know, we could guess all day, but it's interesting that it's coming up and it's certainly in a rabbit hole. So I put those links in there along with a number of other really good ones this week. So please go check those out. I am really excited to bring on our guest, Dr. Andy Kaufman. Um, he has been featured on many of our shows with his links. So now we finally have the opportunity to have him on live. So that's exciting. So when we began this show, going back to the very beginning of April in 2020, all of us at that time, uh, Andrew included, we all felt there was something very wrong with the narrative, with what we were seeing reported on the news and so on. It just, everything felt wrong in terms of the facts, the logic, the lockstep, you know, sweeping across the planet, the, you know, the statistics of people falling sick, you know, not in a random uh, organic way, but in it's sort of, you know, in like a section by section way across the planet, across the time zones almost. And I remember that, you know, we were very cautious initially, but we all felt there was something very wrong. And it took some time to dig in and find some evidence. And I very, very clearly remember the very first time I ever discovered, not that I discovered, but that I personally came into contact with one of Dr. Kaufman's very first interviews. Literally, I had like um, what you call sort of an electrical feeling up the back of my spine. It was like sort of, this is the first time I can hear somebody who is, what can I say, a, a respected individual, a doctor, somebody who actually is speaking out about this and it was really a tipping point in my opinion because it's sort of and uh, I'm absolutely delighted that he is will join us this evening so I just wanted to put that little footnote in before you introduce him thank you Timothy I appreciate that Dr. Andy Kaufman is a natural healing consultant inventor public speaker forensic psychiatrist and expert witness 
He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina and has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. Dr. Kaufman has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He has been qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts. He has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. In addition, he ran a startup company to develop a medical device he invented and patented. So this is our honored guest tonight. Welcome, Mandy. How are you? Are you with us? Yes, I am. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a delight to have you. So you may have heard in my intro my question about vetting information and sources. I do want to explore that. But first, I I would like to ask you, how did this first strike you when it started appearing? What was your clue that things were wrong? Well, I think the first clue was back in December of 2019 when we heard about uh, some odd things in China, such as uh, people collapsing on the streets, and uh, we heard about very strict uh, lockdown policies there. And then when I was traveling in February, a couple of months later, out to California from the East Coast, I saw people wearing masks at the airport in San Francisco. Um, or actually, it was a San Jose, and I had never, uh, you know, really seen this before. And uh, that's when I returned home, and I said, uh, "I'm going to start doing some serious research." And that took you down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Absolutely, I uh, really never thought that I would uh, engulf myself in studying virology in in my lifetime. So I imagine that it also brought you into communication with other scientists that are questioning the same materials. Yes. Well, you know, it's really interesting to uh, think about this perspective because you would think there would be more interest, but because uh, virology is such a narrow and uh, closed off field and people are kind of intimidated or perhaps unwilling to look at things at the base root cause level. So there's been a lot of resistance, and this is really not something new. And I can give you one example, um, and this has to do with uh, Dr. Harvey Biggleson. And he was a, an osteopathic physician, a DO, but still a mainstream doctor. And he discovered some different things in the course of his career. And one of them was that looking at live blood samples gives you very unique information. And he was able to use this and have amazing success working with patients. So a academic doctor at um, in St. Louis, I believe, at uh, Washington University Medical Center, uh, who is a famous hematologist, took a specific interest in this type of blood analysis. And so much so that he invited Dr. Biggleson to come to his laboratory um, and teach him uh, about his research. And when he arrived there, the professor then learned that they would be looking at live blood instead of dead blood, because um, in all of medical research really in the mainstream, all of the microscopic images that are looked at are of dead tissue. 
And so this was a, a major change in the way of looking at it. And this professor refused to look under the microscope. So he had invited Harvey and he came all the way and he had his equipment. And at the last minute, uh, the, the mainstream doctor wouldn't even look at it. And the reason is because it threatens the underlying paradigm that you've built everything on. And if there's a chance that it would turn out to be false, then everything would would shatter instantly like a house of cards. Oh, my gosh. But he actually had the, the gall to not go through with it right then and there. I mean, that's so telling. It's like he already thinks it's not going to be what he wants. Exactly. I mean, imagine the suppression of curiosity because, you know, he must have been so fascinated and curious about uh, Harvey's work that he invited him to come. <laughs> you know, that's not a, that's not a common thing uh, to happen. So, uh, you know, unless you're another academic. So, right. you know, he had to fight all of that and resist the temptation uh, because it was too threatening. Oh, well, Galileo all over again. <laughs> so there are, you know, other doctors and scientists uh, who have, you know, talked to me and who uh, share my opinion. In fact, anyone who I've had a conversation with who is willing to actually look at the same scientific papers that are the alleged uh, proof of the existence and of the cause of disease of this virus and other viruses anyone who is willing to really have that conversation and look at it with an open mind came out on the other end agreeing with uh, my, my interpretation of it because it's, it's pretty clear, it's pretty straightforward. It's just that very few people are really willing to look at it. Um, for example, you have a lot of physicians, some of them are, are mainstream doctors, some of them are alternative types of practitioners, some of them have been you know very outspoken in their careers. And among those people who all recognize that, you know, we're in a very serious uh, situation here and that all the policies are about suppression of freedoms, even those people just don't seem to be really willing to look at this underlying issue. They want to accept viruses and germ theory um, as dogmatic fact rather than investigating it. And, you know, this really speaks to what you were talking about in your conflict with your child. Because if you want to look at uh, things at a more day-to-day uh, -day, uh, level, like, uh, you know, talking about the number of deaths or, or you know, uh, studies on masks or studies on uh, transmission or any of this stuff, if you look at the underlying issue, which is, is there actually a virus that's been proven to even exist and further proven to cause this disease and see that that proof doesn't exist, you can take all of this other research that's built upon it and immediately throw it out and know that it's all false because it's built on a false construct. And that is extremely powerful because it cuts through every other argument. There's no question. Now, the only thing you have to determine is, well, what's the real purpose for the policies that are going on? And, and the fact that, like you mentioned, or one of you mentioned about lockstep, that all of the world's governments acted in unison in an unprecedented manner, you know, no uh, regard for individual national sovereignty. 
Um, we are coming up on break. I just want to say that I wish that it was a child, but unfortunately he has a master's from Cal. So <laughs> <laughs> a little bit easier to, to uh, well, you know, some point. people uh, may not be able to be convinced, but this is a very clear um, scientific argument that you don't get caught up in statistics and interpretation. Thank you. We're at break here. I wrote a couple of weeks ago that says, am I being selfish? And I said, absolutely, but I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. I see the loss of rights and freedoms. I've lived long enough to know what's happened here, and I cannot stand back and simply comply. I'm going to resist those measures with everything that I have, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically, legally. I cannot allow our rights and freedoms to be taken from us. We have to stand up for them. This is where I say that we have to become adults. We have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. We can't ask for them. We have to demand that they be honored and respected. To me, the masking is part of the strategy of totalitarian tiptoe. We just keep encroaching on you, and it's just a little bit worse than it was yesterday. And most people don't see it, but we see it. And that's why this program and the work that you guys are doing is so important. This is Ted Kunz from Vaccine Choice Canada. I just want to reach out and express my gratitude to other side of the news for all that you guys are doing to empower humanity and bring us to a higher state of consciousness. Uh, the time that we shared together was a real pleasure, rich conversation, and I know that all of you are uh, higher conscious beings who are uh, part of the solution. I just want to express my gratitude to Kinthea, Timothy, and Aneta and your program, The Other Side of the News. You guys are great. And welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Our show tonight is Fact or Fiction, and our honored guest is Dr. Andy Kaufman. Co-hosts are Annette Driscoll, Timothy Saunders, and myself, Kinthea. So, Andy, we were just talking before the break about how the scientists are refusing to look at the information and what their possible agenda might be behind it. So I'm wondering, are you finding an alliance with scientists in other parts of the world that are with you working on this question? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. There are uh, several people um, from uh, different locations and uh, certainly I'm open to connecting with any others, uh, you know, who might be willing to question this. Um, but it is true that uh, the majority of people don't really want to look at this issue and they want to stay away from it um, and call it things like uh, needless distraction. And, you know, that's really a 
superficial position to take because if you don't look at this fundamental issue, then you're going to miss the forest for the trees. So I think over time that we'll see more people will realize that this is really the most important thing to look at. One of the things I'm finding really challenging as I'm looking for the data is that I'll see in some video that it's reporting from the CDC site, and then I go to the CDC site, and I can't find the information. Sometimes, I don't know, is it buried? Do they take it down? Is there a source where we can get links to the information that people are, you know, is there a source that all of you are sharing? Because I would love to point my son to the, what he considers to be a valid site. I don't know that I consider it to be a valid site, but he does. Well, you know, this is a big part of the problem because if you try to look at the epidemiologic data, which is what the CDC reports on their website, and they definitely have one of the most complicated websites to navigate and to find specific data. So it's not, you know, you that that's the problem. Uh, I have trouble with it, everyone I know. So some of us send each other direct links to a certain page because it's so hard to find through navigation. But the thing is that that data is not really going to tell you the full story because it's not very accurate. Um, even if you look at the most accurate data, the overall death count, right? Because you think, well, it's one body is one death and it should be pretty straightforward. But we don't even have what they would consider complete reporting until approximately 12 months later from the date of death. And there are so many things that happen with that data changing hands. And why would it take a year to report you know, a death? It, it's really suspicious. But I think there's so much human error, it's difficult you know, really to trust uh, everything. And if you look at the way they present data in terms of causes of death or when they make statistical models to give you the percent of expected deaths and, and other statistics like that, they can easily manipulate the data one way or another. So it's really, really difficult. This is really what I'm talking about, that if you believe there's a virus, which is not true, then you're going to get lost in this big pile of data. And you can even take the same data and interpret it in two different ways that would take opposite sides of the argument. So it's really, really messy. Um, that's why if you look at this simple thing, did they actually prove a virus to exist? It's very cut and dry. Either they did or they didn't. There's no numbers to analyze. There's no statistics. You don't need to understand mathematics at all because, you know, we all know how do you know if you have an actual thing, right? Because a virus is a thing. It's not a thought or an idea or a notion. It's an actual physical thing. So how do you know that you've discovered a new physical thing? Well, you have to hold it in your hand and look at it, right? Now, this thing that they call a virus is very, very tiny. So you have to hold it in a test tube and look at it under a microscope, right? But that's not been done. So if it doesn't exist, then all of the data about deaths is not going to tell you anything about a viral illness. And How can that's it not be done. I mean, 
it's just boggling that people will just go along with this and the core research has not been done, let alone take a vaccine for something that has not been done. <laughs> That's exactly why this is the really the key issue. And the thing is that hardly anyone has really looked at this. And the very small field of virology has adopted this uh, experimental procedure that was developed in the 50s. And they were told that this is proof of a virus. And they don't want to actually look at it and say, well, is this really scientific proof or not? Because it's not scientific at all. And um, is that why he wouldn't look through the microscope at the live blood? Well, I think it's a similar thing that he was afraid he would learn something that would render his profession obsolete. Oh. That if he could see under a live blood analysis and develop new understanding about illness, then he would take his old understanding and it would no longer be valid. And it's the same thing if you're a virologist. I mean, think about what it's like being a virologist right now. You're considered one of the most important people in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. There's think of how much funding, notoriety, publicity and such is being funneled into that small area with only, you know, probably only a dozens of scientists that that are dedicated to that worldwide. Now, maybe mm -hmm. a couple of hundred at most. Right. It's a pretty small field. So we're talking about it's very difficult for them, especially in the current climate, to question anything. Um, there was uh, one virologist uh, from Germany uh, by the name of Stefan Lanka, um, and he questioned things uh, back in the AIDS era originally and is now. And essentially what happened is that his reputation was, you know, smeared in the media. And the same thing has happened for people, other people who were active during the AIDS era, uh, so-called AIDS dissidents, uh, people like Peter Duisberg. Um, you know, whose academic standing and his research funding were compromised because he was speaking out um, uh, against the, you know, narrative of HIV causing AIDS. So it's a very, very risky proposition. You essentially have to be willing to give up or change your whole career. And that's what happened to Stefan Lanka. And this is also what I experienced that, you know, last spring when there was a mask executive order put forth by Governor Cuomo for employees, uh, my place of business where I had a contract with required me to wear a mask and I refused and was terminated. So I pretty much was willing to say I'm no longer going to practice conventional medicine. And that's really what it takes to look seriously at, at this position if you're a scientist or a doctor. And there's just exceedingly few people who are willing to do that. But everyone, every single one that, that has been willing to do that has come to the same conclusion that I have. Right. I look at Dr. Simone Gold also being arrested, several other doctors. But these are the courageous few. You know, you would hope that someone such as this other doctor who refused to look in the microscope, that he would have seen the opportunity to be the pioneer, to be the Galileo, you know? Yeah, but. well, you, you, you would think that, but if you're, you know, a licensed physician practicing regular medicine, how are you going to reconcile that viruses don't cause disease? You, you can't continue to then practice in a normal way because they attribute so many illnesses to viruses. 
So we're talking about a total, a total takedown of what everyone has understood as medicine today, and a total revising of it, reconfiguring, just wipe it out and start over kind of moment. Well, you know, if it were up to me, I would certainly do that. I would keep some of the technologies and procedures that are very, very helpful, but I would definitely throw out the entire culture and the entire business model. If we look carefully at the medical establishment's own scientific studies, they attribute medical care as at least one of the top three leading causes of death. Now, it's not compiled by the CDC because they don't look at it as a cause of death. But there are many studies in the literature, including from the Surgeon General's report covering uh, Medicare uh, recipients, uh, that pharmaceuticals and so-called medical error, as well as vaccines, all have a, a quite a substantial death toll each year. And I'm talking about when used uh, according to the directions, not people taking overdoses of drugs. So if this is the case, then, you know, why would we continue to employ a model that is one of the top leading causes of death? Exactly, exactly. I'd like to bring Annette in because I'm, I'm certain she has some very pointed questions. Annette? Hello. I, I actually have questions. I hope I'm not totally stealing from uh, Timothy. Um, and I just want to go into the introductory parts of these for our listening audience. I would love to hear a simplified version of the terrain versus the germ theory and how that relates to this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for a lot of people, terrain theory sounds like a really foreign uh, thing or it sounds like something that's brand new, but it's actually been around for quite a while. And I think we're actually all familiar with it already because we're familiar with, you know, what people might call the gut biome or the microbiome or gut bacteria. And essentially what that is, is that is terrain theory. And we know uh, commonly, you know, people today know that those bacteria are really important for our health. And in fact, I would contend that we couldn't live without them. So if we look at germ theory, what germ theory states is that diseases are caused by microscopic organisms, that they're known as germs, and basically they come out from outside the body, invade, and then cause disease, and that they can be passed between people. What terrain theory says is that microorganisms come from inside our body and from the environment, but they don't cause disease. They respond to disease in the same way that they respond to disease in the natural world. And what I'm talking about is if you go out in the forest and you see uh, a dead animal or you see some tree branches that have fallen in a storm on the forest floor, over time you'll see those decompose. And there will, there will be microorganisms that... Um, decompose the material down to its constituent elements and it will rejoin the soil and then new life will spring forth from it in the future. And this is called the saprophytic function of microorganisms. And this is exactly what they do in your body as well. 
So when there is some insult uh, to a part of your body, um, that is what you would say is an illness, and that could be from a variety of causes, but essentially from some kind of toxic insult or some kind of lack of a nutrient, then there's damage to that tissue. And the microorganisms are recruited to that area and essentially clean up the damaged uh, tissue and debris, dispose of it, and allow healing to take place. Well, that's a very nice, concise explanation. So I've heard a lot about this. I've actually read some books, but we don't have time to discuss a whole book on the show. So how is that relating to what we're seeing now when, as far as uh, viruses go? How does that play together? Because we know that viruses are in and of themselves not a living organism. So, or, or maybe people don't know. I don't know. Where, where are you? Where do you feel that? How does that work with your research? Well, the construct of a virus that is a, a microscopic particle that causes disease, um, there's no evidence for that. Right. There are all sorts of particles that uh, result from damaged and dying tissues and cells in our body, uh, but those come from us, uh, not from some you know, outside uh, source. So what we have uh, is we have illnesses that they say are caused, you know, by these viruses, which have never been substantial scientific evidence for. And interestingly, they have really no, almost no treatment for any of these viruses. Uh, but if they did, it would be basically something that would, you know, kill the virus uh, because this germ theory is really a warfare uh, type of paradigm. But there are other ways to explain these illnesses that make a lot more sense. And, and if you use natural healing approaches that basically support these uh, principles, then you see people recover quicker and their bodies heal faster and they, they recover from even illnesses that are said you know, to be incurable in mainstream medicine. So it's more about supporting what the body is doing. But if you talk about like a simple, you know, so-called viral illness like colds and flu, well, I think there's an easy way to understand these. Um, and it, it's just basically you're changing your air filter. If you've ever changed the air filter in the heat in your home or in the, the cabin in your vehicle, you'd see that it's filled with lots of junk. All right. It looks horrible. Yes. <laughs> and that's just, just from filtering the air, like in six months or a year. Well, your upper airway, right, your nose, your sinuses, your throat, your trachea, they all filter out the air too, all day long, right, every day. And they accumulate dirt and debris, just like the filter and those other things. And so some people lead such a lifestyle where they might actually be cleaning the filter all the time. Uh, by doing cleansing, by having a very clean and healthy lifestyle. Whereas most of us uh, don't have that approach. So once a year, when the environmental conditions are just right, like when it gets cold and the humidity drops, we basically undergo a filter change, which we call a cold or flu. And the body essentially sloughs off the tissue lining the upper airway, 
and uh, the bacteria uh, come in, are recruited in to come and clean it up, and they cause the inflammation and the uh, secretions uh, from secreting their waste products. And that actually helps to heal because it increases the blood flow, and the secretions allow the debris and toxins to leave the body. And once that phase is complete, then the body's regulatory systems, and including you know what you, you has been called the immune system, would uh, send the bacteria back into quiescence, and the area would emerge fully healed and regenerated um, until the next year. Right. So I totally that makes a lot of sense, and I know a lot of people are asking in their mind, and I've asked the same question. So I'm going to ask it for other people right now is, okay, so you go to someplace and somebody, let's say you're flying, you're flying on a flight and you're totally healthy when you get on, you sit next to somebody who's just snotting all over the place. You know, they're sick and they're coughing and they're snorting and snotting. And then, you know, three days later you end up with a cold. So how is that happening? How do you explain that to, with this terrain theory? Well, I would say that you have to have an explanation of what that is, uh, you know, that makes sense. And it's not really something that's compatible with terrain theory or not necessarily, but is there actually evidence that there are germs being passed around because, um, you know, has it been proven? So in other words, could I take like the germs out of me and put them into you and then show that you got sick with the same disease? So, you know, take one example of that streptococcus, right? Strep throat. Right. Now you have strep in your throat normally. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if I take it from me and put it to you, is it going to make any difference if you already have your own strep? Right? No, no. So exactly. Is... So there have actually never been any experiments where they had a pure germ that they took from a sick person gave it to a healthy person and made them sick. In fact, they've had lots of experiments like that, that no one's got sick, um, like the experiments done during the 1918 flu pandemic by Breslau and the, um, sorry, the precursor of the CDC. I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was done in Boston. And, uh, you know, there were professors who have swallowed live cultures of like cholera bacteria and they didn't get sick. So there's really no proof uh, for that the notion that we pass germs to each other. It's just something that has been instilled in us as a dogmatic belief since the time we were infants, when we're told, you know, to cover our mouth when we sneeze or that uh, Johnny will get us sick if we go around him when we have a cold. Now also, think about it, if germs cause disease, wouldn't we, and they were passed around between people, wouldn't everyone in your household get sick every time you got sick? Because they would get the germ and then the germ makes you sick. So you would be, everyone in the house would be sick. And, you know, like think about married couples. Um, now I know, you know, from my own experience that uh, my ex and I were never sick at the same time. And we, we didn't, you know, go and sleep in another room when one of us was sick. So how is that possible? Um, but what I would say is something that is possible but I don't really know the answer because there's never been a scientific study that has really proven this. But I think that there's some kind of signal 
that you might pass to other people that says, you know, it's time for you to change your oil, your air filter as well. And, you know, this is really not that different from when we actually do things like this in real life. Like, you know, for example, in the spring, you know, you see people cleaning up the debris in their yard from the winter and, you know, you see your neighbor do it, then you're like, oh, I got to do that too. Right. And then you go out and do it. So we kind of work that way socially. And there's evidence actually that contagion may be a social construct. In fact, there's a whole field in sociology that studies this called a social contagion. And they look at things like laughter, yawning, and even menstrual cycles synchronize in women who spend a lot of time together and become close in a relationship. So all of this suggests that there, there could be a variety of mechanisms of which people communicate these things to each other, you know, non-verbally. Uh, but we don't really have any scientific studies that, uh, uh, that conclusively demonstrate any mechanism whereby people transfer this information. We only have the observation that they do transfer some of this information in some way. Well, that that's really uh, brings me to something that I was going to ask you a little bit later, but it brings it up now, which is the emotional, psychological uh, warfare that we're currently enduring. And so how do you see that that playing out uh, in real life, real time right now? Because we know it is happening. And I also, um, I have seen studies that say that you know, people that wear masks uh, have a some say up to 85 times greater chance of becoming ill. And I can say, oh, well, that's because you're lacking oxygen, you're breathing back in your own toxins, you know, all these things. But how much influence do you feel it's the fear factor creating the disease? Because these people are very fearful that are wearing these masks. And I had a guy freak out with me this morning on the sidewalk because I didn't have a mask on, you know, I was walking in my own front door. So How do you feel about that? Or do you have an explanation? Well, you know, there are so many things going on here. And I kind of conceptualize the whole pandemic as really a psychological operation, but not one that really just started in 2020, but one that's been perhaps going on for decades or hundreds of years even. And So for our whole life, we've really been prepared to respond to this situation and how it's played out in a in a certain specific way. And some of that has to do with our upbringing and and the compulsory schooling system where we're taught to accept information from authority figures and designated, you know, government approved experts. And some of it has to do with our understanding about health and the medical system. But as you pointed out correctly, a lot of what we're experiencing now is fear related. And there are many things to be afraid of in actuality, but most people are afraid of this virus or the consequences thereof. And the masks play a very special role because they isolate us from each other. They de-identify us. They are a barrier to communication. You can't see people smile. And so essentially people are separated from each other. And that puts a lot of psychological stress and, of course, contributes to vulnerability to all kinds of illness. Right. Well, I totally agree. I mean, that's why I asked the question. But I think that people, I mean, it's pretty clear these people that are driving down the road with a mask on and a car by themselves, they're they're so fearful. They're definitely uh, susceptible to whatever may be coming along. 
as far as suggestions go. So we're, <laughs> you know, and so these people are really difficult to get any kind of, you know, you can't talk to, you can't speak to the fact that, um, you know, I can point them to the page 39 in the July report of the CDC that says, hey, there's never been a virus isolated here, yet they're still running around like this. And I would love to hear how you think we can deal with that kind of idea, except that we're just about on break. So we'll have to come back. And I know Timothy is really anxious to start asking questions. So we'll leave with that idea right now. So you're listening to The Other Side of the News, and tonight our guest is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, and our show title is Fact or Fiction. So we'll be back after the break with more conversation with Andy. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Judy Mikovits.
and I've really enjoyed being on the other side of the news radio show tonight with with Kinthea, Tim, and Anetta as well. It was really a great experience for me, and I think things like the other side of the news because we don't hear these things. I saw this horrific commercial on TV and I know them to have perpetrated fraud in vaccine court. So it's so important for radio shows like this to have discussion. And I really think these types of radio shows reach a very large audience and people are listening. Welcome back to the other side of the news. You're listening to Timothy Saunders. My co-hosts are Kintia and Annette Driscoll. And our special guest this evening is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Our show title is Fact or Fiction. So yes, Annette, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you did ask pretty much the same questions I wanted to ask. So I'll, I'll skip a few along. <laughs> um, but I would like to point out one or two things, and that is that the uh, the man who some refer to as the father of microbiology, Louis Pasteur, I believe he was uh, certainly one of the big sort of proponents of, of germ theory throughout his life. Apparently on his deathbed, his last words, or some of his last words were, the terrain, the terrain. So I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. Andy, what do you think about that? Did Louis Pasteur? Uh, yes, well, there, there, there is a, a rumor that on his deathbed that there was a confession uh, to Claude Bernard. Uh, but I don't know that that's fully substantiated, but it certainly lives down in history and a lot of people are familiar with it. And I think the quote is, you know, something like the germ is nothing, the terrain is everything. Wow. Wow. So the fundamentals of this whole pandemic. The science is not in. Uh, it's not 100% proven that germ theory or terrain theory is the legitimate path. We have a test, which is not even a test. We have a PCR. Com 
again, I don't want to bore people. I don't want to bore you either, Andy. But shall we just deal with the PCR very quickly? Because uh, Kerry Mullis, I believe that the guy who, you know, put the thing together in the first place, even he himself suggested this isn't totally inappropriate for the use that's now being used to effectively lock down the planet. Yeah, well, that is an excellent point. But, you know, I think this is once again an area that we really don't need to uh, consider too much about the PCR itself, because what would it be testing? You know, if we haven't uh, shown the existence of a virus and we haven't extracted the genetic material from such a virus that we could know what sequences to look for, then there's no way to design any test uh, to find it. Um, and there's no way to design a test to diagnose an illness that hasn't been fully characterized. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a, of a null discussion. Um, Carrie Mullis, you know, certainly did point out that PCR is not a test for clinical purposes, that it's a manufacturing procedure for making uh, measurable quantities of DNA from a, perhaps even a single molecule of DNA. So it can be useful uh, as a research technique so that you could uh, measure quantities of things and also useful as a manufacturing technique. But it has really no practical use uh, the way that it's, it's been used, not only for this false virus disease, but for others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, this has been, uh, what can I say? The, um, I'm just trying to relate it to an analogy with a Cluedo game where you're looking for the uh, the, the murder weapon and, and the murderer and the <laughs> maybe it's too too direct, <laughs> but um, yes, it it's it's it doesn't seem to be helping the, the the discussion as you say because the virus has not been isolated. So let's skip very quickly on to the so-called vaccinations. Uh, we have a number of different ones. Um, well, Timothy, if I might interrupt for one second, I think there yes. is one really important thing to say about the testing. Okay. Um, and, you know, aside from the fact that the way that they stick that swab so far to the back of your nose doesn't make any sense. But the thing is that all of the policies are driven by the number of positive tests, which is what they call a case. And yes. so if people go along with the testing, that's what's driving everything. So I would say that the most important thing that every individual can do right now to restore life back to a free existence would be to not participate in any testing for any reason. I would wholeheartedly support that, absolutely. However, there are what is happening in the world is the freedom paths are being severely restricted until people take, until they're sort of being bribed or blackmailed or scared into taking these PCR uh, results. Or, because, you know, for example, let's look about flying. I've been, I've been looking very closely at flying internationally. I flew internationally last week. Uh, I chose a country where they do not require a PCR on entry. Um, however, most of the countries you fly to internationally do. There are a few, Belarus, there's Ukraine, there's uh, um, Montenegro, there's Mexico, and so on, and I can list a few more. But the point is that the Western, Northwestern Hemisphere, and not just the Northwestern Hemisphere, but most of that, uh, 
a lot of South America, Australia, New Zealand, you know, they're just going nuts, completely nuts about this. And, you know, I don't wish to deviate too far away from the sort of clinical side at the moment, but there has to be a reason for that. Well, this is a really, really important point. And there is a, a bit of an illusion here because people think that, oh, if I just go along with things right now to preserve my freedom, that it'll be better in the long term. But actually, this is a march towards uh, complete control in society. Mm -hmm. And that if we give up these things now, then we're essentially giving them up forever. I mean, we've already seen this play out uh, initially, you know, two weeks of lockdown to flatten the curve. Now we're a year later. The masks were a temporary solution as well. And we've been told that everything would go back to normal after the vaccine. And now we're told that nothing will change now that the vaccines are here. So this is essentially the path that we're taking. And the more that we give up, the more that they will ask for. And it, it will never get anything back. And it is very frustrating not to be able to uh, travel and do a lot of the things. But if everyone simply said, we're not going along with this, then they would just do away with those things uh, immediately because the, these industries couldn't survive. Like the airline industry is already in severe economic trouble. And uh, they're very vulnerable. And if people just said, okay, we're not going to fly right now because we're not going to go along with these restrictions and quarantines. Well, either there would be no more air travel for anyone and they'd have to start a new industry from scratch, or they'd quickly say, okay, we're going to drop the requirements. And that's, that's really the attitude. I think that's the only way that there's a possibility of getting our uh, society back. The only other option is to go outside and form a separate perhaps parallel society. Well, I know that, uh, for example, um, Professor Dolores Cahill is involved in setting up a new charter airline, I believe. I don't know how directly involved she is. Um, I'm hoping that she'll join us in, in the, the few weeks in the future uh, as our guest. However, you know, one of the prerequisites is no mask, no, no lockdown measures, no social anti-social distancing and so on. And if you want to fly in a normal way, then come and fly with us is basically the, the sentiment behind it. I also heard this week that um, I forget which airline it was, but one of the airlines are starting to advertise that first class passengers are not required to wear masks. And maybe, you know, somebody took a tape measure out, worked out if you pay enough and have a large enough seat, then perhaps you are anti-social distancing um, you know, in, in the first class cabin without even having to you know, make any changes. And so if first class passengers paying a, you know, a premium fare are going to fly without a mask, then maybe that will actually set the precedent for other people in, in the future because, you know, the, the whole thing about flying with masks and, and so on is ridiculous anyway if you happen to be eating or drinking take your mask off <laughs> well you Stop already have a, a drink. Uh, you already have a situation with toxic air on an airplane because you know you exactly. can't really get fresh air so uh, of course it you know adds insult um to injury 
But yeah. but you're you know you're it's an important point about that uh, you know travel should be accessible. But we already had these different standards for wealthy people. I mean, already it's very different in first class or business class. But people with real wealth fly in private jets, and. Indeed. You know, it's a totally different experience. I don't even know if all viewers realize, but what happens is that you don't have to go into the airport and wait on any lines or go through any security. You just, you know, sometimes you drive your car right onto the tarmac, get out, they, you know, load, <laughs> load up your bags and you get on the plane and they offer you, you know, a cocktail. It's, That's uh, it. <laughs> You know, and then you fly wherever you're going. And, uh, you know, people are doing that now uh, without these requirements, but they're still on international travel, at least. There are, you know, other types of requirements, right? The reason why you went to the Ukraine and not, uh, you know, somewhere else. But, mm -hmm. but, you know, whatever happens to the people who can afford first-class plane tickets or private jets is much less important because they make up such a tiny percentage of people. You know, what what is really going to be the problem are the, the freedoms that, you know, affect uh, everyone, the common people who, you know, want to travel to see their family or pay respects to their dying relative or, you know, things that, that everybody experiences, not those on the jet set crowd who are flying, you know, from their yacht to their vacation home. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's a very true point. But on the other hand, because Annette asked very poignant questions earlier on I dancing around a little bit I don't mean to you know uh, confuse things but I just one of the other points was that you know if there is this propaganda that people are watching um, these you know case numbers that people are sort of almost ritually watching on a daily basis like an almost like an addiction I mean there's this sort of psychosomatic uh, effect of you know being masked and therefore sort of being almost feeling subservient. And also I think there's an, another point is if, if somebody is told how they are going to become sick, I mean, I, I'm just thinking of, you know, a friend of a friend who unfortunately was diagnosed with a, a type of cancer, for example. And one of the very first things that happens to them is they go to a specialist and the specialist says, well, this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, we're going to test you for this and we're going to give you treatment like this and this will happen, that will happen. So the whole course is laid out so in that vulnerable state, I really do question how much of that program given by the specialist is something which the, you know, either the conscious or the subconscious just, just runs that direction because that's what they think is the right direction to flow instead of saying, no, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to lose my hair. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to recover perfectly well. I'm going to completely change my life. And yes, it may sound like a dream, but I do know people that have done that and have absolutely defeated, um, you know, fairly severe diagnosis. How can we break out of this um, sleepwalk? What do you think about that, Andy? Well, there are some really good points that you make about um, people's uh, views are expressed and how you can easily get kind of trapped in this echo chamber and um, you know when you're captivated by fear and you're under a spell and you're de-identified and separated from people um, you know all of this adds up to 
you know, major psychological programming. And so people that are getting all of the messages from mainstream media sources over and over again, uh, of course, they're going to, you know, believe that to be true because that's their trusted source of information. And we all know it's a basic law of nature. Um, and this is also probably could be described as the placebo effect uh, or the law of attraction that when you believe something strongly and you spend your time and attention thinking and contemplating and planning related to it, yes. then that's actually more likely to come true or manifest in real life. And so that's a somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we have all these euphemisms to represent this because we've all experienced it in our life. And this can work in a positive way also, as you mentioned, right, uh, you know, in terms of people's health. But it can have a profound effect. And we've, you know, used this placebo effect in our medical system in a uh, way to exploit people for business purposes, so, mm -hmm. for example, when they look at how they formulate medications, having a capsule actually has a stronger placebo effect than a tablet. And if there's color or writing on it, you know, all these things increase if it's handed to you by a person wearing a white coat. So all of these things may be exploitive for commercial purposes, but what they're really demonstrating is the power that we have to bring a reality into manifestation. So if we believe that a capsule is going to improve our health, then it actually will, even if it's not through any direct action of what's in the capsule. I'd like to jump in here because you just really uh, opened the door for me. I am convinced that the body has its own wisdom. And I am so surprised when I look at society going with methods that are contrary to the body's wisdom. So even the mask wearing and this placebo effect confirms that the body does know how to heal itself and that the mind really is the one that's issuing the commands. I mean, even the situation where you were talking about how one family member will get it and another won't, but another will. Well, if you're holding that belief system that it's contagious, then you have just told your body, okay. I remember there was a test where they took in hypnosis. They gave someone a glass of water and they told him it was vodka and he acted drunk. Everybody thought, well, that's normal. He, he thinks he's drank vodka, but the thing is, is when they took the blood sample, he really was drunk. The body manufactured the alcohol. So I think we have to come back to body wisdom, that the body really knows what's best. It knows how to regenerate itself. And what we need to do is be supporting it in, in doing that, whether it's in the supplements we take or it's in the thoughts that we hold. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I always look at it from this perspective that just imagine how many individual chemical reactions occur in our body every single second or every minute, right? Because we have like 10 trillion cells in the body, supposedly, and each one of those has at least 100,000 uh, different chemical reactions going on every minute. And all of these things 
are coordinated, right, to bring about perfect functioning in our reality, right? That our bodies can do amazing things and the bodies of animals can do amazing things, right? And our cognitive abilities are amazing. And it's because of the coordination of that extremely complex degree of computation and um, coordination. So given that our bodies are able to do that, you know, how it would stand to reason that they could basically handle any environmental condition because, you know, we don't have any computers powerful enough to keep a human body alive by coordinating all those things, right? There is an innate in wisdom or intelligence that maybe it doesn't come from within our body, but it's in our body. <laughs> However mm -hmm. you look at it, if it comes from the universal consciousness or if it comes from our brain or somewhere else, it's there. And of course, if we just support that and understand the basic principles that govern our body's homeostasis or ability to, you know, re-equilibrate to any environmental circumstance, if we just support those processes, we're going to be either healthy or restored to a state of health. One thing that you said that surprised me earlier was when you were talking about how even getting a cold or the flu is part of that healing process. In other words, it's part of the body recalibrating itself and it's not something to be like, oh no, I have a cold. It's like, oh yes, all right, the filters is working now and it's cleansing my body. That was totally, I, I was surprised to hear that idea and it makes total sense. You know, I don't think we're always meant to be in a state of comfort. And there's great learning that can take place when we experience negative emotional experiences or negative bodily experiences. Now, of course, we don't want to get into a state where those are stay around for a long period of time. But in the short term, I think there's a real opportunity. And if we, you know, we are in a culture that says if we experience any discomfort at all, mental or physical, we should seek remedy immediately, that it's not a normal state to be in, right? So if you look at, uh, go to a drugstore and you see what are the remedies for colds, they're all things to suppress the symptoms to make you more comfortable or less uncomfortable. But what we don't realize is that the same exact things happening in our body that give us those symptoms are actually the healing phase of the illness, um, the insult has already occurred and we didn't maybe even notice that or it was very mild, but it's the mm. healing, the repair process that actually brings the discomfort. And this is why, you know, when people interrupt it, like with antibiotics interrupt the healing because they, they kill all the bacteria that are doing that saprophytic function and they kill the other bacteria with, and, you know, cause collateral damage as well. But after you interrupt the healing then often what you get is then the infection comes back, right? And, you know, you, women see this with urinary tract infections, getting them over and over. And children, you see this with ear infections and with strep throat and things like that. You see it with sinus infections, um, you know, because you're not allowing the body to fully repair and regenerate itself. So the healing is now incomplete and the body has to then execute the program again to try and complete the healing. 
Oh, I see. And, you know, there's like some statistic, I don't know what the number is exactly about, like more people are dying from the wrong medicine in hospitals than actually what they went in there for. I mean, it's just amazing to me how someone can think they could just pop a pill and like you say, just cover the symptom and then they'll be well. Yeah, according to the, you know, studies published like in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the annual deaths caused by pharmaceuticals, you know, taken as directed each year is around 200,000. And that is really a underestimate because it doesn't include vaccines and it doesn't include chemotherapy drugs. So we have a pharmaceutical pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an extremely profitable one. Right. Right. And and you know there's also a lot of misdirection because one of the things I wanted to bring up is with the so-called cures for COVID. And I'm talking about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And those have been suppressed despite like all this clinical evidence that people with, you know, this atypical pneumonia just uh, are cured very quickly with these drugs. And the reason is because of what those drugs actually do. Those are medications uh, for parasites. And what we have here is that there's, there's no, you know, viral illness or anything like that. But we have when people are really toxic and they end up with these seasonal pneumonias, they have parasites. And so that's another thing that's involved in real illness that's being pushed out of the equation. Because if people knew that, then they'd be able to take care of it. And you don't need pharmaceuticals to treat parasites. There are many natural ways to deal with that problem. And they're actually the same exact uh, protocols or, or tools that would be recommended by a, a naturopathic physician or someone else outside of that germ theory paradigm. Well, that's really fascinating. And we are at break time again. You're listening to The Other Side of the News. Our guest tonight is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And co-hosting are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. And the show is called Fact or fiction? There are so few. There in the thousands, we are billions. We are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology, to be able to control us. And that is where AI, 5G, comes in. And then through the vaccine, also get rid of two-thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda they want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years, I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say, The Other Side of the News is one of my favorite shows, so enjoy. Once upon a time, in a place not far from here, there was so much loneliness, despair, oh, so much fear. Darkness ruled all over the land, there was lightning in the sky, causing wars of separation, with no one knowing why. The 
These evil times raise leaders disguised as kind of true. Hiding the true and misty folks only very few people knew. Controlled by an elite few, manipulating you and me. Closing out the light of power that will make us all be free. Co-hosting with my co-host Timothy Saunders and Kinthea. My name's Anetta, and we are here with our honored guest, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And the tonight's show is Fact or Fiction. And we left off with a pretty interesting topic. I think it's interesting. Uh, we were talking about some of the treatments, and it kind of brings it back around to where we started in this show with the terrain versus germ theory in that ivermectin and hydrochloroquine are both antiparasitical drugs. Uh, this is really interesting in the view that we know that they are used effectively, very effectively, as prophylactics, in other words, preventative. So it makes sense that if you would use it prophylactically, that you would clear out the parasitical issue and therefore not be vulnerable to the coming whatever, as we call the filter change, as Andrew has, has given us an illustration. So I find that really interesting. And I'm wondering, Andy, if you could kind of extrapolate a little bit more on that topic. I'm sure I'm not going as deep as it could go. Yeah, absolutely. And and let me, you know, also kind of clarify a couple of things, because I want people to really understand this. So I'm not saying that there's any illness COVID-19 that's caused by a virus. But what I'm saying is that there are people who have pneumonia and are hospitalized and they're using the test to falsely label this as a new disease. But this is actually, you know, something we see every year and there's a death toll from it every year. But what is not understood by mainstream medicine is that actually parasites are heavily involved in many of these illnesses. And it's not that the parasites are like germs that they invade us and make us sick either. It's that they're opportunistic, that if our bodies have an excess of toxicity, which could come from a variety of, of sources, that parasites will establish a colony uh, essentially to try, you know, initially to clean up those things because that's their food. And you could imagine this just like what would happen if the garbage man stopped coming and collecting your trash. 
And then each week the trash would, you know, build up in your yard and, you know, you'd attract raccoons and mice and rats and, uh, you know, crows and all kinds of scavengers. And those are essentially the parasites and they didn't cause the problem, but then they become a problem unto themselves because then you, you know, you have bird droppings everywhere. You have the raccoons want to attack you when you're in your yard and things like that. And that's really what's happening inside your body when you have a, a high degree of toxicity. So, you know, we're talking about not just the cold, that's a mild illness, but when some people that their body is in a poor state of health, that they get, you know, sick with pneumonia and often, you know, go to the hospital. And those are the people that the parasites have kind of taken control of things and really, you know, caused the illness. And I'll tell you, I never knew about this because in medical school, they taught us that parasites only cause illness in developing countries and that we, you know, really didn't need to learn about it except for, you know, an occasional intestinal worm that might make your hiney itch. Okay. That's really was the extent of it. But since I've been studying natural healing and talking to people who have employed various of these methods, I hear about worms coming out of people left and right. And I even had this experience myself uh, when I did a turpentine protocol. And so if, you know, you see real worms coming out of people, that's pretty good proof that they're involved in this situation. And so when I heard about this strategy, because ivermectin is not something you would even think of to use in this situation. So someone was very creative because it's used for worms. And then it was so successful. And, you know, not just as you mentioned for preventive purposes, but actually can cure the illness if it's given uh, early enough uh, after symptoms develop and has an extremely high cure rate according to uh, testimony that was presented to the Congress based on something like 20,000 patients. So if this was taken seriously based on that data. Obviously, every single person admitted to the hospital with these kind of symptoms should be given this treatment, but instead it's totally suppressed because if people knew about parasites being involved with disease, they would have to change everything that they do about health. And by using some simple remedies that are available dirt cheap, you can really take care of parasite issues pretty easily. Well, they most certainly would lose a lot of business now, wouldn't they? Uh, yeah, and, and credibility. Yeah, that. And uh, it would absolutely negate the uh, necessity of uh, these faux vaccines, which I do want to get to. But I, I did want to talk a little bit more about this whole thing. Uh, I've had my experience with parasites. And my question to the doctor that said I shouldn't think about it, and I said, I don't know. I said, do parasites carry passports? Is there some way that they don't come over the borders? I mean, are we so special? <laughs> you know, because when you think about it, how ridiculous is that, right? And well, you I know, if you use my trash analogy, then, um, you know, essentially, as long as you keep taking out the trash, then you're not going to have a parasite issue. Right. And, you know, the other thing is that not everybody's body is efficient at taking out the trash. You know, there are things that go on with people and it can be a nutritional deficiency or whatever, but, you know, not everybody has the same uh, trash picking up service. You know, we're all different with this. So 
some are more susceptible. And that's the thing I wanted to get to was the whole thing of this, why this is really affecting older people so much and the whole comorbidity issue. It seems rather self-explanatory in this light, but I wanted to hear what you had to say about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's not that this or that is affecting old people so much. It's that old people are who generally die because we live to old age and then we die. And, you know, death has a a consistent rate among the population and it's one per person. So <laughs> so we, you know, we might be looking through a microscopic lens now at the elderly but we're not looking broad enough to see that, you know, we expect elderly people to die at a much, much higher rate. But if we want to see, well, why were there spikes in the death of elderly that are going on last spring and why are they now? It's very clear in last spring it's because of, of the policies that were going on that were slightly different in different places. They were much more catastrophic in places like New York, where old people who were needed to be hospitalized were sent to nursing homes where they were neglected and left to die. But you had basically no access to services. You had scaring people. And, and then you basically made them stay home and avoid each other. So all the things that contribute to health and vitality went away. And that makes people more vulnerable to succumb to any type of insult in their body. I mean, there's a reason why there's the phrase being scared to death, because, you know, that can literally occur. And it does, right. I've talked about this before on the show of this this study that was, you probably know it, uh, that was done in the Pittsburgh area. And these people were Italian immigrants, and they did pretty much everything wrong. I mean, they smoked and drank and ate all kinds of food that you're supposedly not supposed to and blah, blah, blah. And they couldn't figure out why these people were outliving everybody. I mean, they just didn't die. They died late in life without degenerative disease, etc. And to, to shorten it, they came to the conclusion eventually that what it was is they had such a good sense of community, and they felt such love and uh, that was the thing that really made them live and not become ill. They didn't have fear. And even if something would happen to one of them, the rest of the people would step in and take care of it. So it wasn't this isolation. It wasn't this fear. And it actually, they have replicated this study since, and it holds true every time. So I think, you know, this whole thing about, uh, I have a father who has been isolated in a nursing home with Alzheimer's since last March 17th and it is criminal what's happened and I don't have control over the situation or wouldn't be happening but uh, I certainly know it from a personal thing and I've watched him just go straight downhill since he's been there you know he has no contact with people so you know it, it's pretty well known that people need uh, you know social interactions and they need a sense of uh, purpose and when they lose those things they generally succumb yes yeah well I'm waiting on the call unfortunately I'm in that place so I also would like to ask a question I wanted to ask about the mRNA and just to give our listenership a uh, nutshell explanation about what it is, how it functions in the body, how it changes, how the body's uh, immune system works. Well, you know, we're talking about here essentially a brand new technology and 
it's hard for me to really understand how they could call this a vaccine or talk about immunity from it, because really, I think the most accurate way to describe it is gene therapy. And they're providing a gene in the form of an mRNA or messenger RNA, and that's the type of genetic material that directly codes proteins. So it's essentially like software to make a protein. But as I said earlier, since there's not been an actual intact uh, virus that's been demonstrated from which to extract a genetic sequence to make up the genes, then we don't really know what this sequence represents or what product is going to be made as a result of this gene therapy. And thus, we ha there's unknown effects that it would have on the body. Now, what they say will happen is that they say that our cells, because this is, a like I said, a gene therapy similar to GMO organisms where they take a foreign gene or genetic material, put it into a host, which in this case would be us, and then have that host make the foreign product. So in other words, it kind of turns us into a manufacturing plant for some kind of foreign or exogenous protein. And but since we don't know, you know, what this is, we don't really know what the effect it could have. But what they tell us it does is that it, it represents a protein that's on the surface of a viral particle and that when our cells make it inside the cell, that somehow our immune system will recognize it as foreign and then um, develop immunity. But there, there are some things to question here because if it's expressed in our cells and our immune system recognizes it, it as foreign, then you would have to think, well, would our immune system attack our own cells and see them as foreign or taken over? Right, because this is what they say happens when our cells are infected by a real virus. So will it cause tissue damage? I think these are all questions to be asked, and it'd be very, very difficult to know what the true answer is. But we certainly can observe the effect it has on people's health and other attributes over time. So how do you see this? I mean, we know that there's been a lot of, quote, uh, side effects or what they call injury, vaccine injury. And we also know that they have zero liability. Therefore, one could say they have zero um, motivation to make it safer or take any responsibility. So we know what has been happening. Uh, the CDC has reported, even they have reported a 3% vaccine issues coming up, 3% of the people, and those issues include death and quite a few of them. Uh, a lot of these people have permanent uh, injury as in uh, constant convulsing, Bell's palsy, different things like that. How do you see that uh, the connection there, how this mRNA gene is working in the body, the, the neurological aspect especially? Well, I don't think we can realistically say that it's the genetic mechanism that is causing those neurologic problems because we see neurologic problems in many vaccines that work by a totally different technology. And that includes Bell's palsy as well as Guillain-Barre syndrome and transverse myelitis and encephalomyelitis and uh, other things like that. And in fact, there seems to be a specific um, degree of neurotoxicity from vaccines specifically. But it's really difficult to tell. But I think it's a 
extremely important to point out that in the United States, the reporting of adverse events or injuries, as you describe them, is completely voluntary. So there's no mandatory reporting requirement, even though this is an experimental treatment. It is not approved by the FDA. It's only authorized for use, uh, which means that they did not have to prove that it was safe and effective. So it's considered an experimental treatment. And this is why that it can't be mandated or required by an employer or or a government at the time because it would violate the Nuremberg Code to require an experimental treatment to be taken by the population. <clears throat> so there are many ways to look at this, but according to a study from Harvard that looked at the voluntary reporting system where you where you uh, presented some of those numbers, and that's known as the the VAERS or V A E R S database. Um, they they said that the um, events reported to VARES represented less than 1% of the actual adverse events from vaccines. So if we take the numbers that are presented now and realize that those probably are less than 1%, then we're talking about a huge number. And you can see this in some news stories and in some reports from you know so-called whistleblowers especially from nursing homes. And there's even a nursing home uh, very close to where I am in, in uh, central New York that in the entire year of 2020, they did not have one death in their nursing home from COVID. But a one to two weeks after vaccinating their population, they had 24 residents die. Now, in that's these, incredible. It mm. is incredible, but in many of these cases, these are not reported as related to the vaccine. Uh, they have other explanations. Even in some places, the explanation is that they have COVID. Like I heard a a program last night on the BBC that was very critical of a video that I was involved in about the vaccine called "Ask the Experts" from Oracle Films. And in that video, they presented a person who was who was unsure about the vaccine. And she described how her father, who was elderly and had dementia, went to the hospital, was diagnosed with COVID and then was given the vaccine and died one or two days after the vaccine. And of course, they said, well, it was too late for the vaccine to help instead of saying, geez, the vaccine killed this guy. But that, that's, you know, what happened. I mean, if you die within one to two days of getting the vaccine, if you're so sick that you're about to die, then why would anyone give you a vaccine? That doesn't make sense, and it's never been done in medical settings before. So I'd have to assume that he wasn't about to die, but was given the vaccine and then died. So that would stand to reason that there would be something that was reportable. So Andy, I think that most may, of these things I, are not getting reported. Exactly. May I just come in very quickly? One of the things that I, I'm noticing is that with some senior people who are considering to take the vaccine, most of the time, at the end of the day, they must make a decision. They must be responsible for their own life and the things they, the things they put in their body themselves. But on the other hand, if they're plugged into the... Uh, into the television programming as opposed to actually doing independent research, and it is difficult if information like this is being censored, then, you know, they can logically think, well, my friends have had it and they didn't drop dead, so uh, maybe maybe I should have the vaccine. But 
what I understand from what you're saying uh, is that the damage that may come from this alleged vaccine, it may come fairly instantaneously, like like the the senior people in in the care home you just mentioned. But what I'm I'm gathering two plus two you know, making four is that this probably is going to be a more significant wave later in the season, perhaps when there is a a natural virus or a different virus which sets up sets off the immune system. Um, I think I, I've heard you, you say before it's like having a, an on button but no off button. Is it what would you say to somebody who's seriously considering to take a vaccine right now? Well, uh, you know, if, if they're seriously considering it, I guarantee they're not listening to this conversation. <laughs> but but it, but in all seriousness, I mean, if you just turn off the TV and just look around and think about all the people you know, like are people dropping dead in the streets? You know, are healthy people that you knew firsthand dead within the last year from, you know, from a sudden uh, illness and they were in good health before? And if that's not the case, then why would you be taking a vaccine? You know, even if you, you look at the official numbers that the survival rate is over 99 percent. So yes. why would why would you need a vaccine? Even if there's only a one in 1,000 risk of a serious health consequence, if there's no reason to take it, why would you risk it at all, right? Exactly. So exactly. That, that's, that's where I would go. And then, and then why would you risk it with something that's experimental? What's, why is there such a rush? It's, it's 10 times as fast as the normal time to develop a vaccine. Not twice as fast, 10 times as fast. Absolutely. Why the urgency? Why the And also, for example, on British TV, I, I know about the documentary you mentioned that was aired this week on British TV. I have not yet seen it because I'm traveling, but I will certainly take a look at it. But what I do understand that came out in the news this week is that the British politicians have started to say that they have not yet ruled out the possibility of people needing to show a vaccine passport before they can actually go shopping for food. It's not yet ruled out. So this force-fed directive for you know everybody, everybody must have this vaccine, which has not been tested on very many people. It's not been tested on people of different age groups. It's not been tested on people who are taking different medications in parallel to this vaccination. It, it's totally experimental. There's no what can I say? There's no, you came up with it earlier, Anetta, you know, there's no fallback position, there's no responsibility taking if there is any damage. And ultimately, this virus has not yet been isolated in the first place. So <laughs> what is it all about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, would, would you buy a car if you had no recourse? What if the car just exploded and you, you couldn't sue them? I mean, would you buy that car? I don't, I don't think I'd buy that car. You know, Teslas, they've been known to explode spontaneously, right? But they, I guarantee <laughs> no, that uh, I you can know. sue Tesla. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite right. So, yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, when we present evidence, we're always questioned. But when mainstream media or the medical profession pre presents something, it's never questioned. 
And, you know, I, I don't know how you deal with that issue. It's really frustrating because uh, I'm looking at actual studies and stuff and then called into question. Do you have a do you have yeah, any well, comment on that? It's, you know, it's really hard to frame the discussion because, you know, for me, like all the time, people send me the same articles over and over again, you know, the publications. And in the title of the article, it says isolation of a novel coronavirus. And I know that they misuse that word, but people think that means it's, you know, proved. And, and so it's really hard to kind of, you know, say, all right, this is, this is the discussion that we can have. Like you have to actually read the article first, then we can talk about it, um, you know, kind of thing. So, so how do you, you know, uh, frame the discussion of what's what and what you're going to talk about, you know, in this debate. And, uh, you know, in my personal life, I have the same kind of difficulties that you do with this. Really? Uh, Cause I mean, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't uh, met any of the postulate requirements and it's questionable whether the postulates accurate in, in and of itself, but most certainly even it hasn't, it hasn't even met that requirement. Well, you know, I think you're talking about Koch's postulates and, yes. um, you know, they, they are valid. They're just common sense. You know, you, you take the germ out of the sick person, you, purify it and then you put it in somebody else and see if he causes the same disease like that's that's all it is right very common sense um but they they don't do that uh but they say they do that in the paper you know mm -hmm. and it's it, it's really fraudulent but you you have to actually read the the methods the see one of the things i learned that i was very lucky because when when i was uh in my uh training as a forensic psychiatrist um, I got involved in research and I had this mentor, um, uh, who is a PhD and he, you know, said, he's like, when you look at an article, the first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what, what you can conclude from the experiment. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really, really important because, um, you know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. In fact, it, when I did my residency at Duke, they had a whole course teaching us about this so that we could look at the medical literature and evaluate it properly. What I noticed that they do now, uh, which they didn't do even 10 years ago when I was, you know, doing that work, is they put the method section at the very end. And in some papers, it's like in a, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the, the results and conclusions and an introduction section, and nobody looks at the methods. Mm. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also like a many ways that things could be fudged. And, you know, there's there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. Then, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article that uh, which is, you know, highly one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all research published research is false. Right. So mm -hmm. but but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50 percent chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. 
Well, you know, the other thing that I, I've been looking for, the I lost the source on this, but we used to have a completely different set of criteria for what constituted a ethical and unbiased study and what the journals would accept as a study. And one of the big things was that they couldn't, it couldn't be financed by someone who had a, um, you know, a reason, like an, an advantage Con in having this. Conflict and of interest. A con yeah, that's the best word I'm looking for. Conflict of interest. And um, now we have all of that taken away. It's completely removed. I remember my father was a scientist, and uh, he he went through this his whole life with this this issue of um, it took it, it got to be it used to be that you could you know you could afford a science uh, scientific study you could do it. Then it got to the point where with all the regulations etc. It took so many millions of dollars that you had to basically pay off somebody to do any studies. And if you were a little guy without ulterior motives, you couldn't do it. You well, know, it's, it, it's slightly, you know, I mean, yes, there's, there's definitely truth to that because it's all the funding is put forth by the people who decide what research will be done. So you can't really do your own ideas unless mm -hmm. it's the same as their idea, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, mm -hmm. but, but all this clinical research, it, it's really just, it's really marketing. It, yes. that, that's what it is. It's not actual research, you know, where they test new drugs and, and all that kind of such. That's like with this vaccine trials, you know, it, it, it's just, they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness uh, that's the the relative risk reduction of having a test, and it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. But they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 95%. And uh, they also, you know, defined the outcome, and then they did had to wait seven days after the vaccine, but all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know all kinds of uh, tricks. Why. They're 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 experts at this. They know yeah. they know what they're doing, and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing. Um, you know that's that's why it's gotta you gotta look at this central underlying issue because it, because then everything else falls away, and you know it's it's all uh, BS. Mm. And <laughs> Andy, one of the things that I find. I'm sure I'm not alone, but very frustrating. I mean, the perfect example is I have a very good friend. He's a uh, general practitioner. He he's half Norwegian, half British. I've spent a lot of time talking with him about some pretty far out stuff. You know, it, it's not like we we a fantasy, you know, having a fantasy, but it, it's enjoyable to have like an intellectual conversation and see how far you can push things while keeping one foot on the ground. And the other day I called him and he is totally and utterly sucked into this whole COVID thing, hook, line and sinker. And I just, you know, it, it just drains you of energy to even think how somebody you think you know so well can be, in my opinion, fooled by this. I mean, I know that that's, it's a, he probably thinks I'm fooled by this conspiracy theorist, you know, but I mean, yes, I know. Same here. How, how can we break this? <laughs> how can we break this spell? <laughs> I, I don't think it can be broken. I think that it's uh, for each individual. 
I mean, it is a spell. It's it's just like uh, being in a cult. Yes. And, you know, and pe not everyone can, you know, be deprogrammed from a cult, but they don't, they're not all deprogrammed at once. You know, that's, that's for sure. Yes. And yeah. so I think, you know, we do see people uh, coming out one at a time. Uh, but, you know, we want to, I mean, it's so obvious to us that we want to have this, uh, you know, massive awakening. And yes. I mean, we're desperate for it because we see that if it could happen, it would turn the whole thing around and we wouldn't have to suffer. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, but it's not happening on that scale. And I, uh, I, I would say that people I'm meeting, I mean, the people I know, you know, I've been, I guess, working on them. I try and be respectful and give a distance. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not looking to change their mind. I'm just looking to offer a neutral you know, set of information which they can then choose to make their own decision if they wish to. But you know what I'm noticing more recently is that I mean even you know there's a guy I sat next to on a plane the other day. He's a, an engineer, Turkish engineer, traveling to the Ukraine. I spent an hour and a half talking with him. We couldn't stop talking because he was totally and utterly um, coming to the same conclusions as as we have been just been talking about. But it was almost like the point where it's it's like a new realization for him you know right. yes. in the in the ukraine obviously the, the television programming is is very powerful but different than perhaps what you have in the states or what i have in you know places i've been in the last year or so but i mean again you know if i talk with a guy or somebody you know in a coffee bar or whatever it is then it's not a surprise to them you know then even the checkout girl in a little village shop in turkey where i normally live i mean she says this is not a health pandemic it's an economic pandemic you know there are an awful lot of people who are becoming alert to this but at the same time there's also a lot of people sleeping on their feet as well it's um i think the realization is coming but as you say the speed is not perhaps like i want it and it's it's not about me. It's just, but but if we take it one year, one you know one year section through last year, and we look where we are this year, I think some of the events you've spoken at. I mean, you know, you look at what happened in Berlin. I mean, look what happened in London. I mean, you've been on. I don't know how many events. I've probably not seen all of them, but you know, in, too many to count. <laughs> <laughs> You know, from your side, how many events are there? How much of this is actually going on at the moment? That that's what I'd find fascinating because so much well, is sent to the other side. I mean, you know, not enough would be the short answer. I mean, there there certainly is stuff. I mean, there are people in the UK for sure and in Canada for sure who I know personally who are organizing or participating in marches and rallies every single week and yes. have been doing this since the summer. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that this is rarely representative, and I don't think that that's what's going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Like, look in Berlin; there was over a million people there, right? Yeah, um, back in, in September, and yes. that that is one of the most oppressive places. I mean, they have you know they're building or have built concentration camps in Germany, and the people are, are accepting it. You know, they've had yes. subsequent rallies, and what do they do? They had the military with water cannons, you know, mm -hmm. and people are not fighting back. So True. it's essentially, you know, 
not meaningful. What I, the only thing I think is meaningful is individually in your own life, you have to defy the orders. You know, if you have a business, you keep it open. If you uh, are a customer, you know, you don't get tested, you don't wear a mask, you don't, and, um, you know, like you deal with the situation that if you can't do something, you either, you know, don't do it or you get a group of people together and you try to overcome the situation. Yes. You know, like we, we've done that with some, um, you know, shopping with masks that some people were just too timid to like face the social pressure to mm -hmm. go in a, a store, but they didn't want, you know, they hated wearing them. And so we just got a group of people together and went together. And then the, those people felt, you know, strong enough or secure enough to do that. Excellent. Uh, you yeah. know, in strength and numbers kind of thing. So I think mm -hmm. that that's the, the kind of thing that can move the needle or like, you know, convince people who already see that it's that what's going on in terms of a government, you know, takeover, like help them see that the virus is fake. Because then they, because you know, all the people who think about the government takeover. So, what if, what if they do? There is some kind of switch in the vaccine, and they throw it, and and hundreds of thousands die. Mm -hmm. Well, then, then they say there's a mutated, you know, COVID, or they say it's a, a new virus. Exactly. Well, if you if you're still believe in viruses, then you're going to be totally vulnerable at that point. Mm -hmm. You'd be like, oh, well, I'll wear masks now. But but really, this should be even if there was a dangerous illness that that spread person to person. The way to deal with that is everybody makes their own decision. If True. you if you feel scared and it's too risky, then you can simply stay at home. If you think a mask protects you and you want to wear one, you can wear one. Right. And each individual can decide what their risk tolerance is or what their impression of the situation is and then they can decide for themselves what what they're comfortable with and other people can help you know provide them with accommodations like if they're too scared to go in the store maybe we could deliver the groceries to their car mm -hmm. right but but forcing everyone to adopt this position where other people's health is your responsibility right this is really the shift to communism or communitarianism collectivism that True. is a, a fundamental problem here that's even separate from any of the scientific uh, data. I guess, I guess where I'm coming from is, obviously, it's not my right to dictate what other people should do with their health. Of course, it isn't. It's just a question of, I think it is important to, you know, find the truth and share the truth. But ultimately, what it's coming down to is my kids, because I want them to grow up into a world which is, you know, at least as free as mine was, and hopefully much better. And it's not looking good right now. So that's that's kind of what is the precursor right at the beginning. That was the incentive. And in my opinion, when it came to forced vaccination or, or you know, people being bullied, coerced into being vaccinated, I thought that would be the tipping point that we need to avoid. And here we are, you know, nearly a year later, and it's beginning. So. You know, I'm, I'm just, that's why, that's why I'm frustrated with this, I guess. It's just, we go through phases. But um, anyway, I'm sure I, I you... Have a, a I have a question. Like... I have a question for you. Uh, so one, the, the thing that's super frustrating to me, or I talk to people all the time. I'm, I'm pretty bold. I'll walk right up to people and I'll talk to them. And I, 
you know, they admit that they think it's complete BS, that they don't believe there's a virus, but they're wearing a mask. I'm like, why do you wear a mask? Well, I just don't want to uh, ruffle any feathers. I just don't want to cause a problem. I, I want to respect people that are afraid of, of this virus so they don't they aren't uncomfortable around me. Blah, blah, blah. What do you say to that? Well, I, uh, I used to be somewhat of that mindset, not that I would wear one, but that I didn't want people to be uncomfortable around me. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's actually important to make people uncomfortable. Um, not like to be rude, but but it's like, why should I get out of someone's way? Like, why if why should I change what I do to accommodate someone else? Unless you know, trying to just be generally courteous uh, in an appropriate way, you know, like say excuse me and please and thank you. Um, there's really no obligation to do that, and and they're actually hurting me by you know by. Um, looking at me funny or staying away or, or scrutinizing me. And so like, let them feel uncomfortable and maybe they'll realize, you know, what they're doing is, is not right. But that, uh, Maybe that'll help, you know, wake them up a little bit. I think, I think I didn't state the question correctly. I have no, I, I agree with what you're saying. I totally do that all the time. And I try to be, you know, not rude about it, but not get, you know, not change my behavior to accommodate right. them. But what I'm saying is I have conversations with people and in those conversations, then they'll admit, yeah, this is both. Right. Yeah, it's not really, you know, it's well, not really you could there. Ask but a, then ask a question like this. So how long are you going to wear it for? You're going to wear it for the rest of your life for that purpose? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Okay. You know, because like if, and or you could say, well, if there's not really anything to worry about in there making all these people scared do you think they're going to do something to you too you know like i mean if you don't think there's a reason to wear this then then why is you know everyone trying to say there is like what's you know like you have to think about well um you know then why would they be like this you know is there some other purpose and and if you you going along with it are you supporting that purpose i mean it's hard to have this in a casual conversation well, I managed to. <laughs> I like to jump in here. Like, you know, when we go to the grocery store and they're they're becoming even more fearful. And so I like the idea where you mentioned several people going together. And I'm just wondering, how do you handle stores? Do you go with, like, never, what can we do I, to I the store? I never wear a mask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, what I do is I, I mean, I don't go to stores that much because I hate mm-hmm. the confrontation of it and I hate seeing people with their face covered, right. but, but I, you know, I get my business done and, um, I just, uh, you know, before I go in, I take a few mindful breaths. I remind myself that I'm doing the right thing and I go in there, you know, with that feeling of confidence and, and, um, uh, justice and people mostly don't even interact with me you know because they they i mean they see someone walking around who knows what they're doing you know like that energy that you um send out definitely affects how people are going to react to you um but i do you know like people do confront me and sometimes and i always try to to be civil uh like i invite them over to come have a 
calm discourse and talk about things if because sometimes people would yell from a distance you know right. <laughs> and well, like- uh sometimes people will talk to me in a nice way and then i'll they're not expecting me to give them a whole bunch of scientific evidence but i do mm. well here in california the, there's a guard literally a, like a an employee that stands yeah. at the door and you cannot enter unless you have your mask on and usually what happens is i'll I'll have it there, and then as soon as I walk in, I pull it down or something because we have yeah, to get Yeah, see, I would just, uh, you know? I would, I would uh, not go to those stores. But if, I no were in, pl- if I were in California, no I would leave, go. leave California. <laughs> well, True. there's always, there's always a place you can go. That that's okay. another thing. Like that's a false reasoning. Like there's always a choice. Okay. Right? Well, like I'm going, if your I'm... employer requires it, you can find another job. Like you, if you could find, you can order groceries online or delivered, or you could move to a different area or, you know, travel like that. I think that those are the kind of sacrifices we, we need to be ready to make because if you do go along with it, then you're supporting it. Well, in my I'm go- opinion. I have gone against it the whole time, but as Cynthia has pointed out, one of the reasons I'm able to say I haven't put a mask on and I'm not putting a mask on is because she does the grocery shopping. So, right. And I you do know, and, fight with them. I mean, well, fight is a little strong. I yeah. do speak up. <laughs> and I've it, been called on it many times when I'm in the middle of the store. Yeah, and mm-hmm. realize but that if you But if you, enter a, if you enter a store that requires a mask, and you even if you, you put it on briefly and then you patronize the store, you're using your dollars to support their policy. There are no stores that don't have that here. I just want to be clear. Here in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's why, like, I would move uh, if I were there. Um, That's an option. Or, you know, just uh, buy things online. But then I don't want to support Amazon either. Let's get real. Yeah, I know. But there's there's mom and pop online operations as well. I mean, it's harder. But it's like, you know, you're talking about trading convenience for freedom. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have I have really had a lot of confrontations. There's no no doubt about it. I had one again last night. I went in to you know, the cat food store, and the same thing. And I go in, and usually I can walk in. They don't even notice me because this they've got a so used to staring down at the ground. That's what people do with masks on. They stare at the ground a lot. They don't even yeah. see anybody. And so you're afraid I usually, to make eye contact with people. I mean, it's so alienating. Yeah, I, I used to, to, so I usually can go in and just say, you know, I just go in and I get my stuff, and nobody notices whether I have a mask on or not, because they haven't even looked at me. Right. So, um, but every once in a while, I hit, I hit a, I hit a hard wall, and um, I, the only time I ever put one on that I, I really, I really had a conversation was I was trying to get back on a flight, and I know Timothy can relate to this, I was trying to get back home, and I flat out wasn't going to get on without sticking that damn thing over my face. Yeah, I, flying I is one nasty, of the most worst things. I, yeah, I wrote nasty messages on it. And then as soon as I got in my seat, I made a tent over my whole thing with a blanket. And I sat under there without a mask. And I dare them to take a look under there to see if I'm wearing a mask or not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't. Yeah, well, you know what? They would have had a real ugly confrontation midair if they had done that to me. So... Anyway, but it's, yeah, it is hard. It's really hard. And I am, by the way, very, very, very seriously trying to figure out how to move out of here. But, uh, and I, you know, like I've also driven to Georgia and Florida because of not, you know, wanting to deal with that on the, on the airlines. 
So and I, I've given up other uh, travel, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's really unfortunate, but well, when I was stuck in in uh, Fort Lauderdale last year for about four months, I did have to wear a mask to go into the shop. And because I didn't have a car, and I basically packed you know, whatever. It's a long story short. But so I did wear a mask to go through the, the door. I didn't hang it on my ear. I put it on my wrist. I put it on a drinking bottle of water. But the first thing I'd do is go up to a cheese counter and I'd try about three or four different cheese. And of course, you have to take the mask off to try it. And nobody minds then if <laughs> the COVID is different. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's about, um, it's not about that. It's about something else. And everybody yeah. kind of knows it in some way that it's yeah. about something else because otherwise all these contradictions would be picked up upon. True. You know, I mean, when you like, you know, occasionally in the hospital, they would want you to wear a mask for like somebody who had uh, like MRSA infection or something, but you, you wear it for five minutes and then you throw it away before you leave the room because it's contaminated. That's it. You know, you don't wear it for eight hours. <laughs> no. All the crap you're breathing out is in there. Mm. You know, I've seen people sneeze in it and then keep it on. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> <sighs> Excellent. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, for me, Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe the show has already shot past. Uh, we're coming up towards the end of the show. Andy, if there's anything you'd like to promote, any events or any books or any, any work, any papers, anything along those lines you'd like to promote, please feel free to do so right now. Well, Timothy, to be honest, I'm, I'm involved in too many things to mention specifically, but I would um, invite people to come to my website and sign up for my newsletter. And that's at andrewkaufmanmd.com. And it, it's uh, one F and one N in Kaufman. And um, that way uh, you can keep informed, uh, like because I do have an in-person conference in central New York coming up on the 27th with Tom Cowan. And so if anyone's listening is uh, within driving distance, uh, it'll be right near Utica, New York. Um, please consider uh, coming to that. And if you sign up for my newsletter, uh, uh, you will get notice about that in the next couple of days. Um, so, uh, but I definitely appreciate, you know, everyone's, uh, interest and, uh, you know, I would love to, uh, attract some new people to come and, and join the discussion. Anetta, would you like to close? Any thoughts? Yes. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm, I wish we had more time to, to go into more detail, but I really encourage people to do their own research as always. Remember that we're dealing with uh, something that has definitely has a political um, motivation and uh, to listen carefully. We have, you know, with these vaccines, there is no proof whatsoever, even admitted publicly, that they prevent you from uh, getting this, quote, COVID. And they also do not prevent you from spreading it. And that's if you believe that it's even you're even capable of doing any of it. So in the first place, so the vaccines are very questionable. And I would encourage everyone to do their research. And before you think about it, because there is no off switch for this one. And thank you so much, Andy, for coming on and speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Kintia, are there any points you'd like to bring in? I sure would. I want to thank you, Andy, for an amazing revelation uh, tonight. I learned a lot, and I know that our listeners did, and we can't wait to have you back. So thanks a lot. 
Well, it's really been a pleasure. 